Welcome to the podcast, An English Prof Reads the Bible. I'm your host, Megan, and today we're taking a look at Psalm 52. So, whereas Psalm 51 asked us to take a look at our own sin, Psalm 52 asks us to take a look at other people's sin. Not so much their private sin, but their public sin. They're doing harm to other people. And this psalm asks the question, what's up with that? Why are they doing this? What is the outcome of them harming other people in this way? What is a more godly alternative to this that we can live out? As far as literary terms, uh, we're going to take a look at some contrasts in this psalm. We're also going to take a look at some comparisons, um, especially simile, which is, of course, a comparison that uses the word like or as. But we're also going to do something a little bit different, and we're going to take a look at some connections. And when I say connections, what I mean is we're looking at the text, in this case, Psalm 52, and we are connecting it, surprise, to to something else. Maybe it's another text, another poem, another story, another movie. Maybe it's something in our own personal experience. Maybe it's something in pop culture or in world events. And obviously, these kind of connections aren't necessarily intended by the author. The author didn't plan for you to find them. But making the connections can still help you understand and appreciate the text. You can think of it like this. Let's say you go to see Wonder Woman, that's popular right now, and you get in it and you enjoy it, and the character of Wonder Woman, Diana Prince, really reminds you of a special woman in your own life. And so you have this connection between the movie and your own life. And of course, the creators of Wonder Woman didn't intend for you to find that connection. They didn't put it there deliberately, But the connection is still valuable in that it helps you appreciate and get into the movie a little bit more. And it's exactly the same when we're looking at um, any other literary text, including the scripture. The connection isn't necessarily intended, but it will help us get more out of the text. So with that said, let's go ahead and get started. I'm going to read the psalm like usual, and then we're going to unpack its literary elements. Psalm 52. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, Here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise you forever because you have done it. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name, for it is good. All right, so as we get started, uh, let's take a look right at that very first verse. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. And this first verse sets the tone for the remainder of the psalm because there's a key juxtaposition or a key contrast here. I want you to notice the contrast between the mighty man boasting in his evil deeds and God's goodness enduring continually. And we get the impression that the mighty man thinks he has done something worth noting. 
this this evil thing that's big and important, and yet uh, God's goodness is coming behind it and undoing it and outlasting it. In fact, the psalmist asks this rhetorical question, why do you boast in evil? And it's as though he's asking, why in the world are you so proud about your evil doings? Why do you think they're so great? God is still good. And so this rhetorical question gives us the impression that from the very beginning, we know that the evil things that the, that the evil man is doing are limited. They're checked. They look great, but they're not really that great when we take a closer look at them in light of God's goodness. There's also a little bit of irony here in the first verse. Irony is, of course, the difference between expectation and reality or appearance and reality. And so, you know, the fact that that this person is called a mighty man who is boasting in evil gives us the idea that he probably looks pretty powerful. And yet, given that God's goodness endures and outlasts his evil, he's not really that mighty. I think that we should read this verse with a sarcastic tone. Oh, mighty man, you're not that great. And so we get the impression here at the beginning of the psalm that there are some people who set out to do evil and to do harm to others, and it can look scary, but God is still there. He is still good and his goodness is dominant and most powerful. I do want to note, before I move into the rest of the psalm, something that caught my attention here. This very first verse is a direct address to the evil person. And the fact that the psalmist is coming up and essentially telling the evil person, hey, you're evil and your evil deeds are all going to be destroyed in the end, suggests that there is value in speaking out against evil plots and speaking the truth to plotters, uh, speaking the truth that uh, they will eventually be destroyed. This leads us actually to our very first connection. As I think about um, you know, speaking the truth to evil people, what my mind jumped to right off the bat was actually Star Wars. And in the very first one in episode four, A New Hope, Obi-Wan and Darth Vader meet each other in that final lightsaber battle. And Obi-Wan tells Darth Vader, you cannot hope to win. You're going down, buddy. And this is what that psalm is, is doing as well. Uh, the, the psalmist is coming up to the evil people and saying, you cannot hope to win. And I think he is an example for us here that this is a, a godly and a good thing to do, is to speak the truth about evil. All right, so moving right along. I want you to notice also the essential contrast of the psalm. On the one hand, we've got a description of the evil people. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. And on the other hand, we've got the description of the godly people. I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. And these two passages are connected or similar because they are the two similes or comparisons using the word like in the psalm. The evil man is is like a sharp razor, the godly man is like a green olive tree. This sets up a contrast that can help us answer these questions about what is up with these 
these people harming other people? Why are they doing this? And how can we embody a different way of living? So let's talk about the evil person first. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. I want you to notice that word destruction because I've talked a number of times about these people doing harm to other people and this is where I'm getting it from because destruction implies working against uh, the well-being and the stability of other people. We are knocking the Jenga tower down. We are working for harm and not for good. It's also important to note that this is this is not an accidental harm. You know, I haven't bumped into somebody on accident in the street and apologize. It's deliberate. The word devises implies intentionality. It implies scheming. The evil being done here is not by accident. It's also in the present tense. Notice that devises and working, these are ongoing, current. This is, this is the defining action for people. They are currently engaged in and defined by their attempts to destroy or to do harm to other people. And then we have that simile, your tongue is like a sharp razor working deceitfully. When I think about razors that are deceitful, what I think about is that old urban legend, so this is our second connection, what I think about is that old urban legend about razors and candy bars, right? It's Halloween and somebody has slipped a razor into the candy and then given it to the kids. And this is apparently really just an urban legend. But when we think about it, you know, the, the candy bar looks good and it looks appetizing, but it can kill you. And so that suggests what's going on with the mighty men, with the evil men in this psalm. They're doing things that might look good, but can cause us severe harm. Maybe physical, maybe spiritual, maybe both. And so big picture wise, what this gives us is an understanding of what the psalm understands to be evil. Evil in the context of this psalm is, you know, defined as a continual injustice or harm to other people that is often disguised as something good. You don't have to be Darth Vader and obviously bad to be participating in something evil. And so the next couple of verses give us a deeper look at evil. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. You love all devouring words, you devouring tongue. There's a couple of things that I think are, are worth noting here. One is it really stood out to me that the word used to describe these people's relationship to the destruction and the harm they're doing is love. This, this is actually an emotional attachment that they have. They enjoy this and I find that very troubling and, and sad. It's also, I think, worth noting that they're described as loving to lie rather than speaking righteousness not that they're described as loving to lie instead of speaking the truth. The word righteousness is bigger than the word truth. It incorporates truth, 
but it also incorporates other ideas like justice and mercy and honor. And so, again, we're getting the impression that these people like to look good on the outside, but prefer deceit, injustice, and dishonor. They're also described as loving, devouring words. And this brings us to an, our, our next connection. When I thought of devouring words, and I'm totally going to out myself as a nerd here, I thought of Shelob in The Lord of the Rings. There's a portion near the very end of The Two Towers where Tolkien describes her. And I'm going to read it here because I think it really gets at the, the character of these people. Tolkien says, Still she was there, who was there before Sauron and before the first stone of Barad-dûr. And here's the important part. She served none but herself, drinking the blood of elves and men, bloated and grown fat with endless brooding on her feasts, weaving webs of shadow, for all living things were her food and her vomit darkness. Now, obviously, you know, this is a fantasy novel, and that's a spider. But I notice that she eats everything that comes her way. She is, by definition, given over to consumption and materialism and self-centeredness. She devours. And that's what these people do. They love devouring words. They're defined as a devouring tongue. In fact, you know, saying that saying you devouring tongue instead of your devouring tongue suggests that they're they're identified with this concept of devouring. And one final connection to make here. If you listen to our very first episode about Psalm 1, you remember that God is creator and those who follow him are like him in that way. They also create and they also give to other people generously. And so the fact that that these people in, in this verse are all about devouring and taking things in for themselves makes them essentially, by definition, ungodly. And so, really, when we think about it, their, their predicted end is no surprise. Um, the, the psalm says that God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall pluck you out of your dwelling place. He shall uproot you from the land of the living. Those word choices, pluck and uproot, I am picturing pulling a weed here, right? And the weed is dead when we get it out of the ground. And just so, these people who have put so much effort into destroying and consuming other people into plucking them up will themselves be plucked up and destroyed. And so, you know, at this point, the takeaway here is, sure, the havoc and destruction of evil will often seem to have the upper hand, but it doesn't in the end. The destroyers eventually get destroyed. So this brings us back to the other simile. I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. And when I first read this, I read it as I am a tree which bears green olives. But of course, that's not what it's saying. It's saying I am a an olive tree that is still green, that is still young. A young tree is one that's more likely to be a strong tree. It's likely to have many years of production ahead of it. It's going to bear fruit and it's probably going to bear 
fruit bountifully. This is not a wild olive tree, but it's one in the house of God. It's cultivated by the master gardener. So it's going to bear so much fruit, uh, extra fruit for other people uh, to enjoy. And so this is the very opposite of the evil men in the first half of the psalm. These people produce, they don't destroy, they give and they bless, they don't take. I'm actually, so another connection to make here, this part of the psalm reminds me of something that happened to me as a child and may have happened to you. My mom planted way too many tomato plants. I was maybe about 12 years old and we had a number of tomato plants and they got all planted. They were really well cared for and we had tomatoes from the middle of summer clear through October. We canned them, we froze them, we ate them with every meal, we gave them away. And as a kid, I was so sick of canning by the end of the end of the summer. But, you know, looking back now as an adult, I see that it was a blessing to us and to other people as well. And that's what's going on with the with the godly people here. They are fruitful, abundant, and blessing other people instead of destroying them. It's worth noting that they trust in God's mercy forever and ever because, of course, plants do grow old. They have a bad season. They get destroyed by storms. And yet the fact that they're blessed by God forever implies that even if they should falter in this blessing, God will still care for them, will still protect them. His mercy and goodness endures whatever wickedness that the mighty men cook up. Two final notes here. One is the context in which this happens. The speaker says, In the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name, for it is good. And the fact that he's in the presence of God's saints caught my attention because He's with these other people that are, are brought together through God's mercy. They, they have something in common, and they are likely all little green olive trees that are blessing those who are around them. And so the speaker is within a mutually supportive community, whereas the mighty men are given over to destroying other people and taking what they can for themselves. An alternative godly way of living is one where people come together to promote each other's flourishing and to promote each other's well-being and give what they can to the community to make that happen. I also notice that the speaker finds God's name good because that's not something we see with the evil men at all. They destroy utterly. They lay waste. And the speaker has some, found something real to rejoice in. And so the big idea that I'm left with at the end of all of this is, sure, people will destroy and oppress and will take things for themselves. And they will look very powerful. And we, we may think to ourselves, they look so mighty. How can we hope to stand against them? But this psalm assures us that eventually they end with nothing. And those who depend on God, those who follow his creative and his generous ways, will find something of genuine value. And so this brings us to the application. I'm going to deal with a literary one first because I think it's shorter this time. Literarily, I want you to 
consider the contrasts, consider the comparisons within, within the Psalms, uh, like we've been talking about. Think about what the word choice implies. But I also want you to think about how you can relate the text to other books, to other movies, to your own personal experience, how you can relate one psalm to another psalm, because making those connections will help you dig a little bit deeper. Spiritually, I think there's both an intellectual and a personal application. Intellectually, I think this psalm makes clear that we need to understand that evil is more than just swearing or watching bad movies or whatever we were warned against in Sunday school growing up. Evil is oppressing other people. It's wanton consumption and greed. It's destructive. And it's important that we see that as evil too. As far as Personally, I think there's a note of encouragement and a note of action here. Encouragement-wise, you know, we all reach points in our life when it feels like evil and oppression has the upper hand. And so it's encouraging to think about how God may be using you to bless and other people and to bear fruit, even in the middle of an oppressive situation. And it's also encouraging to remember that even if it doesn't look like it, evil will be punished. The note of action here is that I think it's worth asking ourselves that as men and women of God, how do we stand against oppression and destruction and stand for community and blessing and generosity? This is not a question I can answer for you. It's a hard question, but I think it's a question that is worth asking. This brings us to an end of episode 8 of An English Prof Reads the Bible. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. If you did enjoy us, please subscribe to us. Please tell your friends about us. Check out our Facebook page, An English Prof Reads the Bible, for updates about the show. Leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you have a good week, and I will look forward to talking with you next time for another episode of An English Prof Reads the Bible. <laughs>